Hello and welcome to Charging Ahead, the electrification of Africa. This series of podcasts addresses the generational and technological transition afoot in the electric power sector in Africa. I am Lamine Savadogo, President of Marison Energy System and a Global Ambassador for the Edison Electric Institute for Africa. In this special episode, the Edison Electric Institute hosts us for a special award ceremony for its Global Ambassadors. We are also interviewed by Dr. Lawrence Jones, Vice President of International Programs at the Edison Electric Institute. Enjoy. Thanks for joining and welcome to our webinar today on 2020 Industry Perspectives, a conversation with EEI's Global Ambassadors. EEI's Global Ambassadors play a special role with our program to help extend the reach that we have in connection to the industry in all parts of the world. And our webinar today is partly to bestow on them some recognition for the role that they've played in supporting our program and also to facilitate a conversation with their observations on what's happening in the industry today. So we're gonna start with a few words about the ambassador program and its history and the role that it plays uh, have a little bit of a virtual award ceremony and then we'll move into a discussion with uh, everyone. So if you would like to join that conversation at the end, you can ask a question in chat you can virtually raise your hand if you want to be brought into the conversation and we'll make this as interactive as we can. So with that, Lawrence, over to you. Thank you, Daniel, and good afternoon, good evening, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome again to uh, this uh, very unique and special webinar we're organizing for the first time. I would, I would guess, and I will leave that to our president, Tom Kuhn, to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's our first ever Global Ambassador webinar and the program that was put in place, and Tom will talk a little bit about this program in his welcome remarks. But very, very grateful that so many of you have taken the time to be on this call uh, to not just recognize these uh, uh, very hardworking and successful uh, global leaders in our industry, but also to just talk about where we're headed in light of COVID-19. So. With that, I'm very pleased to introduce our president of EI, Mr. Tom Kuhn, who will give some welcome remarks. Over to you, Tom. Well, thank you, Lawrence, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to everyone from around the world to this uh, EI webinar for a conversation with three of EI Global Ambassadors, uh, who uh, we are also recognizing today for their commitment to supporting international collaboration over the past five years. and for all their work to strengthen the global electric power industry. More than 25 years ago, EEI established our International Programs Department, uh, and one of the goals was to create opportunities for electric companies around the globe to share and exchange experiences in operating their systems. Electricity is a universal commodity that is agnostic to politics. A watt is a watt, and the value it creates for consumers around the globe is intrinsically the same. However, how the watt flows and the value it delivers are subject to different regulatory, financial, customer, environmentally, and other external factors. Five years ago, Lawrence joined EEI as Vice President of International Programs and was challenged to grow the program in terms of membership and new partnerships 
as well as expand the impacts of EEI activities around the world. In order to effectively develop our membership of strategic engagements around the globe, Lawrence proposed that EEI establish a global ambassador program. Our ambassadors would work to promote the activities and initiatives of EEI international programs. Today, we are pleased that thanks in part to the support of the global ambassadors, there are more than 65 non-US electric companies with operations in more than 90 countries that are members of EEI. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown the value of electricity and how it is in indispensable to the world. Across the globe, electric companies' top priorities are the health and safety of their employees and continued delivery of reliable and affordable electricity to the communities that they serve. The scale and scope of this pandemic underscore that defeating this virus will certainly require strong international collaboration. We are pleased to see the level of engagement and sharing between U.S. and non-U.S. electric companies in their response and recovery efforts to COVID-19. During this unprecedented pandemic, the outlook for the global electric power industry is full of uncertainty. EEI global ambassadors play a key role in support of the international programs by identifying regional priorities and opportunities for industry-wide engagement. Together, we will continue to work together to promote the importance of our tagline, Powered by Association. Today, we will feature a discussion with three of our ambassadors for an exploration of the challenges and opportunities faced by our, indus by our industry in 2020 and beyond. I would first like to recognize Pierre Bernard, Ambassador for Europe and Middle East, Lamine Savadogo for Africa, and Ian McLeod for Asia Pacific for your contributions to EEI and our international programs, as well as your work in your regions. With that, I would like to turn it over to Lawrence, who will moderate the webinar. Thank you so much, Tom, for, for those remarks. and. Uh, gentlemen, as a, as a token of our appreciation, if Tom was here physically, he would be handing you these beautiful awards, but I'm going to ask Daniel to show you the awards. So those are the awards you will be receiving, thanking you for your five years of commitment and your contribution uh, to EI and the international program. Uh, these will be sent to you uh, via mail or in the mail. So at least you can see them virtually and perhaps touch them virtually, I guess, and and. Uh, imagine receiving it from Tom's hands. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, if you can just uh, close your eyes and teleport yourself to Washington, D.C., you will be now standing in front of Tom Kuhn receiving these uh, plaques on behalf of EEI. So with that, uh, I'm going to just, on, on behalf of everybody on the call, I'm going to clap, give you guys an award and clap. <laughs> and thank you for your for all your, all your services and everything you've done. And thank you, Tom, again, for these uh, kind welcome remarks. So with that, we're gonna move forward with the program by asking our first global ambassador, Pierre Bernard, to offer his perspective. Each ambassador will speak for about five minutes and then we'll open it to the Q&A. So Pierre, you go first. You're on mute. There you go. So let's go again. Um, Lawrence, thank you. Uh, Tom, thank you also. And um, thank you both of you for this award. It is it's an honor, it's uh, much appreciated, and it has been really a pleasure working with you guys um, in the last couple of years. Um, we learned so much, and um, trying to help you 
uh, in uh, sending a couple of messages across the globe is really a fantastic experience. So thanks a lot. And then, Tom, I'm looking forward uh, to shake hands again. And um, even if it comes by mail, it goes directly to my heart. So much appreciated. Uh, I look forward to it too, Pierre. Looking, yeah. So the sooner the better, Tom. Um, so Lawrence, in Europe, um, today was a great day, especially in Belgium. As you know, I'm located in Brussels and we were allowed to reopen a little bit. And uh, one of the big things, at least for me, is that golfers were allowed to go back on the greens. And um, at 7 a.m., I can guarantee you, I was there uh, at the um, driving range and at 7.30, tee number one, and here we go. Uh, more seriously, um, it felt quite good uh, to go back on the streets. Um, mask is not compulsory, except in a couple of places. But I think that would be the rule uh, starting probably next week, two weeks from now. Uh, at this stage, we do not have enough masks for everybody. Uh, so I think the time we, we get equipped, uh, that will come and um, everybody will have to wear it, at least in, in public places. Um, what is important also is that I would believe that what we could call the new normal will not be able to be defined before a couple of months. And I tend to think about at least six months, probably the end of next autumn. Um, we're going to see three phases. Phase A, that's from now until probably the end of next month, in order to see if uh, the numbers are okay, or if all of a sudden we go to peaking again, meaning reconfining. Then you're going to have a period between next month and September, um, where you're going to see at what speed the business is going to come back. And then around October, something like that, uh, I think will be the moment of truth and see if uh, we have a significant second wave or, or not. And it's only after that time, uh, if we're able to, to manage that, and um, except of course, if we have the good use of having a vaccine um, in between, um, that we will see what's the real impact. On the short term, and especially on our industry, um, what we see is that, and certainly in uh, Q2 and Q3, uh, cash management um, is an issue. Um, you see the utilities squeezed between, on one hand, uh, customers that are deferring or not paying their bills uh, or just disappearing from the market because they go belly up, um, and regulators asking them uh, not to put too much pressure. Um, of course, the largest utilities have good access to cash. They, they can access the bond market. But nevertheless, um, it's not a situation that they can endure for, for too many months. Um, you also see that um, there is a delay, quite significant, in terms of maintenance. For example, nuclear plants uh, had to delay for a couple of months uh, important maintenance schedules. Uh, that will have an impact um, on the available load, which to some extent might be a good news for suppliers because that will put some pressure uh, upwards on prices. Um, but it could represent issues in terms of uh, adequacy, system adequacy in the winter. As you know, uh, managing a grid is more difficult when you don't have that many loads than when you have too much load. 
and um, we see some issues today. What we also see is a delay in new infrastructure, especially for renewables, for the same reasons as uh, maintenance, it took more time. Um, then, very interesting, we have a preview, and I guess, um, Jan, in your area, you should have that also in Australia, where we have quite a preview on uh, what will be the market of tomorrow. Um, we had a very nice April month, a lot of wind, a lot of sun, uh, meaning a lot of renewables. Um, at the end of the day, that represents significant negative prices. Um, I think it was on Easter day, uh, we had a price dip uh, around, if I remember correctly, $125 minus $125, which is huge. Um, and not enough flexibility. So that definitely will imply new market rules, more flexibility tomorrow, more storage. And then last but not least, as you know, uh, Europe has approved the concept of a green deal uh, that was supposed to, to get in action um, as we speak. This is a little bit delayed because of confinement, but I think at the end of the day, um, the main targets will remain. What will be important is uh, watching what governments will decide in the next two months, because we're going to face a, a significant recovery plan a lot of money will be needed. And there you see on one hand, the lo strong lobby uh, to go back to the old normal, uh, fossil fuel, uh, not that much green generation. And then an equally strong lobby uh, to push forward, for example, more green and allow, uh, give money to large companies in as much they respect some green conditions, how we call them here. For example, in the airline industry, it's okay to bail them out, but only if there are significant measures taken to reduce uh, CO2 footprint. So that's more or less, in a nutshell, um, Lawrence, where we are today. Okay, thank you, Pierre. We will come back to you with a couple of questions. Uh, let's move on now to Lamine, uh, representing Africa. Lamine, over to you. Uh, good afternoon, Lawrence. Good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, fellow ambassadors, uh, Ian and Pierre. I would like to say again, thank you very, very much for this award, which is uh, something that I really, really appreciate. The recognition with a world class uh, by a world class organization like EEI. Um, the I would like before to proceed. I would like to pay a special tribute to Tom. Lawrence and yourself for your leadership, and Daniel, who have been behind the scene trying to coordinate all of this. I'd also like to pay a tribute to the men and women of the electric power sector globally, who continue to work in power plants, dispatch centers, manholes, truck, uh, bucket trucks, linesmen and women. All of these people who are working 24 hours a day to keep the power on. It is the power that powers our homes. It's the power that powers uh, the hospitals, the IUCUs, the emergency room, the research labs, and the power-hungry server banks that make internet possible, that allows us to connect uh, virtually across the world. So I'd like to give a quick update on the spread of uh, COVID-19 in Africa. 
And I'd like to say also, when I talk about Africa, I mean the entire continent from Tunis to Cape Town in South Africa and from the Cape Verde Islands to the Seychelles. According to Africa CDC, the total number of confirmed COVID cases stand today at 44,483 with uh, 14,921 recoveries and 1,801 deaths. Now those numbers may be surprisingly low given that the continent has a total population of over 1.3 billion with generally weak healthcare infrastructures. But those numbers we have for now, they may increase exponentially, they may not. Almost all the totality of the cases recorded in Africa have been imported. Uh, they are concentrated in large cities with international airports. And we find the highest concentrations in Northern Africa, Egypt, uh, Morocco, Algeria, and South Africa. Uh, Africa is not new to pandemic. So that experience came in handy this time, and the response to COVID-19 is being coordinated at the continental level through the African Union's uh, Task Force for Coronavirus, which to be authentic has to have an acronym. It's called AFTCO. Uh, it activated its emergency response system on January 27, 2020. Thank God, widespread infection has not yet materialized. That's what we feared. Uh, social isolation remains difficult to achieve, but other practices such as wearing masks, washing hands several times, and sealing the big cities from the rural areas where there is virtually no infection are being followed across the continent. Many countries have become self-sufficient in producing masks. In places like Benin and Morocco, local industry and tailors have mobilized very quickly to make sure that many items are available. Using the lessons learned from uh, Ebola, the Institute Pasteur in Senegal came up with a test kit and a rapid diagnostic kit. In other countries, they've been able to make local respirators and ventilators. In Tunisia, they've even come up with a robot capable of taking pulses, checking temperatures and blood oxygen levels and allow virtual visit by doctors and patients without endangering anybody's lives. In Madagascar, there is even what is called COVID organis based on the Artemisia anua plant, which is supposedly a cure. Now, EEI's responses to COVID-19 has just shown a special light on international cooperation in uh, the electric power sector. The overriding principle that you, Tom, Lawrence, and Daniel have been touting is unity of message, unity of effort, and unity of guidance. Because electrons have no political color. In fact, one of the most uh, amazing uh, communists in the world, uh, Vladimir Lenin, he was uh, reported to have said, uh, the Soviet Union is uh, electrification of the entire country. With electrification, that really made the Soviet Union possible. So what I would like to say, the lessons that we have been sharing across the globe from Ian in uh, Australia sharing with us 
how they have been dealing with the renewable situation. Pierre involved in discussions in actually uh, arbitrating between government officials to decide what to do have simply been amazing. I have been very, very thoughtful. Uh, I have been very, very thankful to be part of those exchanges. Now, the spirit of collaboration has been extended to our exchanges with APUA, the Association of Power Utilities of Africa, which collectively has about, about 49 members, which provide electricity to 750 million people across Africa. When we talk about electricity in Africa, we usually talk about how many people don't have electricity. But I'd like to report that 750 million people do have access to electricity. And through our work with uh, Didier, uh, Abel Didier Taylor, we have been exchanging and learning. Because as I said earlier, Africa is not new to pandemic. So they have had pandemic response plans in place which uh, I think we have been able to, to discuss and learn from. Now, our work with Atpua has allowed us to see the reaction in Africa. The reaction for the power sector has been coordinated at the African Union level and also at the regional level. In countries where, uh, which were affected by Ebola, the existing emergency plans were activated. And I'd like to remind people also that the elbow bumps that we see, which, has, uh, uh, which have replaced the handshake, uh, come to us uh, from Liberia. It was initiated in Liberia. That's what we use now not to uh, communicate the disease, uh, the disease. So the power sector in Africa has been affected. There's been a drop in power consumption because many businesses have been closed, businesses have been closed. Uh, there is an increase in residential power con consumption, which means that there was an inverse in the load curve. Generally, the load curve in Africa is between 6 p.m. and 11 and 12, uh, 11, 10 and 11 p.m. But this time, the load curve has inverted it during the daytime, which creates a special problem for the electric utilities. Uh, also, this time of the year coincides with the peak load in Africa. The month of uh, April generally is when the highest demand is because of uh, the heat in most of the African countries. Uh, in terms of response, most of the utilities have put a moratorium on paying bills, which creates a lot of problems. You continue to produce electricity to sell it, but there is no revenue coming in. And this is a a big problem going forward for the electric utilities, which already have a problem uh, with uh, balancing their books. Uh, another problem we are seeing is also IPP contracts, the independent power producers selling to the grid, which have contracts that call for pay, take or pay. And they, whether you take the electricity or not, you have to pay for it. And the utilities with no revenue are still having to pay those bills. And as we all know in Africa, when you write those contracts, they tend to include what I would say exaggerated uh, risk perceptions. So those uh, costs tend to be very high. I think as we go forward, we may have to figure out a way where those uh, uh, take or pay contracts are negotiated so that everybody comes up ahead. And the countries are 
struggling with other debt burdens as well. So there is a discussion on how to restructure the date, debt so that the African uh, countries can come up ahead when uh, this COVID-19 is uh, finished. So I'll stop here. There are many other things, but those are some of the things that we have uh, been uh, observing in Africa. Thank you, Lamin, and we will certainly come back to you. We've had a couple of hands being raised for questions, and so we'll come back to the Q&A. If you have any questions, you can post them uh, to the chat box, or you can raise your hand and we'll recognize you as we start the Q&A. With that, let's travel all the way down to Brisbane, uh, New Z Australia, and uh, hear from our friend Ian. Good morning. I almost said New Zealand. We should have said New Zealand. I know. Yeah. I almost said New Zealand. We should have gotten in trouble. But please, Ian, go ahead and give your remarks. Thank you. Yes. Uh, look, I'll join the other ambassadors and uh, pass on my thanks to to Tom and yourself, Lawrence, and also Daniel. Um, I've enjoyed the discussions over the years, and, and I do remember sitting in Tom's office uh, a few years back talking about how we could learn from each other, particularly on things like uh, governance policies, uh, regulations, and renewable integration. Um, unfortunately, our biggest test has probably become this one uh, around the world, uh, but uh, Look, I think EEI has uh, stepped up to the mark and I know that the information that they've been sharing with uh, utility CEOs and executives and managers, certainly around Australia, has is, is been valued. I'm getting some very positive feedback on that. So thank you very much. And thank you, Lamine and Pierre, for uh, uh, being part of the crew and uh, giving us those sorts of views of what's happening around the world. I was fortunate enough to, to go to Africa last year uh, with EEI and certainly spend some time with uh, some of the executives over in Africa and certainly helped me with my perspectives of uh, some of the challenges we've got and how we can actually work together to help each other. So that being said, uh, you know, we are an island here uh, down in the south uh, end of the world, so uh, we're a little bit more isolated and we probably from that uh, it becomes a bit of a natural attribute. Uh, we cut uh, off international travel reasonably early than state-to-state travel. Uh, so the government was reasonably uh, quick to respond. Uh, at the moment, our cases are, are 6,825. Uh, it's in a population, not a, not a large population, about 26 million people, of which 5,800 have recovered. Um, we've had 95 uh, deaths uh, in that period, so uh, a rate of 1.4%. Uh, so our health system, because it was cut off reasonably early, we've been able to, to cope and uh, the government's reintroduced uh, elective surgery, etc., to to enable the hospitals and, and people to deal with health issues. Uh, this weekend, uh, we had some more freedom. Um, we were able to go out and walk through parks and beaches, uh, even uh, some, even uh, doing some non-essential type shopping. Uh, restaurants and hotels and those sorts of things are still closed, uh, and essential businesses is still go ongoing. Um, I think uh, some of the interesting things, uh, particularly for Australia in this case, I don't have the New Zealand figures, but. Uh, uh, in terms of load, we've seen a, 
only a 3% decline in April at this stage, following a 7% decline in, in uh, March. And I've talked to a few of the CEOs uh, around Australia and, um, you know, it's different in every state. And it's uh, one of the things that I've certainly uh, witnessed is those that are more digitally enabled with you know, things like smart meters are certainly able to to keep on top of what's happening in their portfolio, particularly um, able to see down at a geographic level or spatial level, different sectors about what's, what's happening, who's being impacted. And those shifts in the load curves become quite important. Um, Australia was already suffering from low load, particularly in uh, South Australia and Western Australia. Um, our Australian energy market operator has been doing quite a bit of work to forecast what that looks like coming into the autumn period so that we can manage those risks as renewables continue to increase, but the, the main generation period in the middle of the day continues to drop. So that's, a, that's an issue that Australia is facing. Some of the maintenance on uh, the thermal generators has been delayed. Uh, I imagine that will probably start to uh, come around again soon and be started for the summer period. So the risk is getting ready for, for summer. In some of some of the networks, planned works uh, were stopped and it was essential and response type work. Pretty much uh, most of that work is, is back now. So working on vegetation, uh, the reliability of the lines, maintenance and those sorts of things. Uh, look where Australia is pretty much a uh, very much a mining country. We dig things out of the ground and we send them overseas. Uh, in this case, I've, I've probably been a bit critical about that over the years. We're not being overly entrepreneurial on, on uh, manufacturing, etc. And that's come into play. Uh, there's certainly a lot of conversation at a federal level about how we mitigate those risks. At the same time, those industries are still operating. So uh, uh, the exports and particularly large infrastructure projects have uh, continued to operate. Uh, I see great better relationships occurring between some of the unionised uh, or the unions and the uh, major constructors in Australia, particularly around managing risk. Uh, as the union said, we do this every day. Uh, this is another risk to us. If we can manage that risk, we should be able to continue. Uh, on the retail side, uh, similar to what you're seeing elsewhere, uh, particularly the small retailers were at significant risk and uh, the industry has worked well together to uh, provide support for those retails in terms of deferral payments over the next six month period so that we don't lose competition in that space. And I think one of the other uh, key areas, uh, we, we just came off Black Summer, of course, so it was the worst bushfire period Australia has ever seen. Um, so we're dealing with insurance issues, we're, we're dealing with resiliency issues, and uh, through this pandemic, trying to get the network up and running. I can say that the industry's done a, a good job to date and the uh, perspective of the industry uh, is, is certainly from, from the customers is certainly up there and it's being valued as supplies maintained for this period. Big issues around keeping operation control centres going and with that's been managed.
I think a lot of the CEOs are saying uh, this work from home environment that we've been in, uh, in some cases it's been productive, in other cases less productive, uh, but the culture is uh, what people are trying to say, well, how can we take those learnings from this uh, pandemic and how we've been able to respond and continue to provide that, that, that source of uh, productivity and life being energy. Um, and take that in back into our, our business. So we're starting to get into the recovery phase. How can we how can we take what we've learned, recover, be there for the economy, and move into resiliency? So I'll finish it there. Thanks, Lawrence. Thank you, Ian. So let's start with a question and answer. I want to go first to Pierre. Uh, Pierre, you talk a little bit about uh, the return to normal to some extent in in uh, in, in Brussels. Can you expand and talk a little bit more generally about other European countries? What's the trend? What do you see on the horizon in terms of returning to some degree of normalcy? And what are some of the challenges you see that could affect our industry as part of this recovery? Uh, well, most of Europe is following the same trend as, and the same schedule as uh, we do here in Belgium uh, a week before, a week later. Uh, for example, France will reopen on the... Um, uh, next week, Monday 11, um, Australia. Austria has reopened a little bit. Germany um, was um, less strict than we were, so they, but they reopened very recently also. Then you have the special case of Sweden, who didn't confine with the same, um, the same, um, how would I say, uh, same strict rules as we had, um, but is doing quite fine also. Um, as I said, going back to normal, I think you have to wait uh, where, we, where and how we will be off in, uh, at the end of the autumn. Um, up to there, I would see going up and down um, with um, probably a couple of uh, stop and goes. Um, but who knows, this is, uh, this is really a premiere. Uh, I don't think anyone else uh, face the same situation. We had pandemics before, but it's the first time that you have the economy that has been put on hold uh, almost everywhere. Uh, the result is that for industry, significant lower demand, um, prices are dropping, um, impact on renewables. Um, what we start seeing already is an interest for additional M&A. Um, people looking for opportunities, acquisitions. Interesting to see also that in some countries uh, you have grid operators. As you know, in Europe, we have separated uh, the grids from uh, generation and uh, you have electricity and gas operators uh, talking together and uh, looking at uh, potential mergers. For example, in Italy, uh, Terna and SNEM have uh, started to uh, discuss last week uh, encouraged by the Minister of Energy, so the gas TSO and the um, electricity TSO, other countries are looking at that also. So at, at this stage, I think it's quite difficult um, to have a, a good view where we go. As I said in another webinar um, recently, I think what the industry needs to have is flexibility. That's really key uh, in terms of being able to adjust the good news for industry is that um, it's an industry that has been trained to face um, 
difficult situations. Um, in every country, you have storms, uh, winds, um, snow, whatever. And every year, the teams are ready to, to fight and to face that. What is different here is that you have to work with a reduced workforce um, and that the situation is uh, ongoing for a much longer period than what we used to have. So I don't want to be over negative or over optimistic, but I don't think that it's really um, credible to give any meaningful prediction within the next couple of six months. Thank you, Pierre. And we'll come back to the issue of prediction. So because one of the things I would love to hear from each of you towards the end would be some sort of a some crystal balling. I know it's difficult to predict, but I think it'll be great to get an understanding of uh, you know, where we might be headed to. Uh, let me, let's go over to you. And, and uh, there is a question that has come up here as it relates to, uh, to, to Africa. And they, it really has to do with this issue of consumption and the need for creating some demand. And the issue goes to this topic of industrialization. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, briefly about what we need to be thinking about long-term about Africa in the context of industrialization. But also, there's also one of the other thoughts here regarding Africa being uh, in terms of supply chain, Africa with its proximity to Europe and the United States and even uh, to uh, Brazil and Latin America. Could we see an, a kind of a new uh, strategic relationship being built between the Europeans, Africans, Americans, and, 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 and Brazilians in terms of creating a sort of a uh, another uh, nexus for uh, uh, supply chain going forward. What are your thoughts? Okay, two-part question. The first part in terms of uh, the uh, market factors in Africa, we cannot develop the power sector in Africa without industrialization. That's uh, a key factor. So we could not, cannot continue to grow cotton put it in bales and put it on uh, ships and send it to uh, Asia where they make clothes, send it to Europe and the United States where people wear them after six, eight year, months or a year, they give it to the Salvation Army and it goes back to Africa as used clothes. That is a formula for disaster. So the industrialization of the continent, which means that the raw materials that are there and the amazing labor pool, 1.3 billion people, most of them young, eager to work, very digitally savvy, because that's one of the things that we haven't seen that people don't know about the level of digitalization, people, what they have been able to do with those smartphones that they have. That level of literacy, the eagerness to work, we can remember there are thousands of Africans who walk uh, hundreds of miles across the hot Sahara Desert, try to brave the choppy waters of the Mediterraneans, they are looking for jobs. If the jobs are in Africa, they will not do that. And the only way we can create jobs is to industrialize, which is, means that we have to make sure that we also become part of the world supply chain, that we manufacture, not only for African consumption, but for the rest of the world. One of the things that this uh, pandemic has shown is that we cannot all depend on one part of the world to be our supplier, to be our manufacturer. It's very, very uh, dangerous. Uh, the threat was initially raised when we had the SARS epidemic, 
everybody talked about diversifying the sources of supply. When that pandemic was controlled, we forgot. But I think one of the things we should do, we should not go back to normal. The second part of your question, which is an alliance across the Atlantic. If you look at the southern basin of the Atlantic Ocean, where you have a concentration of people of African descent on the African side and on, in Brazil, where you have more Africans than anywhere else except uh, Nigeria. So if we see that the proximity, the ge geographic proximity, the combined resources of Latin America and Africa in terms of uh, rare materials, that becomes a powerful force for a historic relationship that has existed between Europe, Africa, uh, and uh, the United States and Latin America. Those are ties that we should forge. But you and I discuss uh, often this notion of paper to power. There's been a lot of study done about the power sector in Africa. It's time for us to move now, to try to move those uh, power projects from paper to power. I just want to make sure that we all understand that the African continent with is 30.2 million square miles of arable land with natural resources is positioned geographically very close to Europe, very close to the United States to play its role. Let's use this COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic to be an opportunity to take a second look at Africa, where the dynamics exist to be able to diversify the world's supply sources uh, from just one region of the world. Thank you, Ian. Let's let's move over to you. Uh, Lamine talked about this issue around uh, sort of industrialization. He talked about uh, the export of raw material, which, as you indicated, is a key part of what Australia does. But I want you to talk a little bit about risk in terms of how is the Australian market going to evolve? We know that the markets have gone through a lot of, uh, I would call it, mini turbulence over the last couple of years in terms of the structure around capacity issues, in terms of how the markets were designed from a retail perspective. What do you see happening in Australia in terms of uh, the overall risk perception when it comes to the evolution of the Australian energy market? It's a, a very interesting question. Um, and, and I think it, it is that uh, time in which we can pivot and have a serious look at these things. So uh, I'd argue that Australia has gone down a pathway, uh, be it a pathway that uh, we all want, or an endpoint that we all want to achieve, which is uh, reduce carbon. But we've not done it in, a, in an orderly way. And the fragmentation of the industry uh, added to uh, politics, uh, our federal government, uh, under the constitution does not have overriding power on, on energy. So it is a state-based approach, um, and therefore subject to the views of the governments at the time. And so what we've seen over a, well over a decade now is uh, uh, policy, um, strategies, et cetera, that, that really aren't uh, well designed to reach an endpoint. And what we have now in Australia is a network or a supply system uh, that is delivering energy at a higher cost at this point in time, although uh, there's been some changes in that recently and expected changes, uh, but with a less secure system. 
Um, so we've seen outages in, in, in a full state on some occasions. So I, I think from a industry perspective, we are vertically disaggregated. Uh, we do generally have retailers and generators uh, that have merged together that we call gen tailors. Um, they do have quite a bit of market power. Um, and the regulatory model that's been applied over the years has been, I think, uh, less than flexible. I, some statements before about flexibility and agility, I think is important. Uh, last weekend, not this weekend, just gone, the weekend before, we saw zero prices right across the national electricity market. Uh, we see a, our Australian energy market operator currently uh, planning, forecasting to understand what the risks are going uh, through the winter into the next summer to understand whether we can maintain supply. We have significant loads in the middle of the night uh, which aren't being moved over to the middle of the day to soak up these things. So there are some gaps in our regulatory construct. Um, if we, uh, the, the risks that we see in terms of being predominantly a resources country, a little bit like Africa, there's a lot of talk now about how we construct industry uh, and therefore, you know, how, how do we grab what is effectively gonna be very cheap energy in the middle of the day and create value in that energy for us as a country. And I think that's a challenge because 90% of the discussions or, or conversations are out there is, is really about taking energies into batteries and storing it. Um, I don't put forward a counter view, I put forward a, a wider view, which is, well, how do we just make it more productive as well? Can we spend 50% of our time talking about the fact that we will have zero energy in the middle of the day because it's oversupplied and how can I put that into jobs, not into a big battery? How can I make more production lines? Uh, I think there's an opportunity to look at the regulations and the rules that are out there, look at how it's worked in this situation, what's not working, um, how do we get to a, a cleaner future, but on the way, improve gross domestic product improve our manufacturing capability uh, and, and improve the quality of life. So thanks, Ian. I'm going to go to the audience. Well, those online, if we have any questions, I'm going to first start with uh, Tom, if you're still there, do you have any questions or comments, Tom? No, but I think, uh, I think Ian's uh, recent, just that comment he just made is right on target. We really have to look down the road and look at a situation where the marginal cost of energy is going to be, uh, very, very low where you are going to have a change in the peaks and uh, daily, you know, daily oversupply in the middle of the day. And it, uh, it just uh, is going to have to lead us to rethink a lot of things, particularly some of the uh, regulatory situation we've got and the price formation issues we're facing. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Pierre, let's come back to you. I know that uh, one of the things we've talked about, and I know is dear to your heart, is this whole idea of the role of the consumer and the value perception of, of what is going to mean going forward and how are customers responding to this new situation we find ourselves in. Do you want to comment a little bit about how we should view the perception of electricity in terms of the value that it brings and, and how should we use that as we do what Ian and Tom just talked about, reassess the importance of electricity markets? What is the role of the customers going forward? Tricky question, Lawrence, um, but a nice one indeed, thanks. 
Um, picking up back maybe on what uh, Tom and Jan said, um, as I mentioned in Europe, we, we have almost, not every day, but every week, uh, significant negative prices. Um, so meaning people pay, are paid for not generating power. Um, the market doesn't have any rules to tackle that. But the consumer doesn't care. He's not seeing a difference on his, um, on his invoice at the end of the day. Um, one of the questions I'm asking myself, what we see here everywhere in the world, including in, um, in the US with the Republican administration, is that you have strong government coming up for us everywhere. Um, who would have imagined a couple of months ago that your administration uh, would provide um, healthcare to almost everybody or would agree to, um, as we call it, uh, to have helicopter checks uh, flowing down. Um, I think we have to raise, to think about what is the role of government when it comes to essential facilities um, and, and, and consumers. Um, in, not right now, but when you look at uh, tomorrow's energy world, you're going to have a lot of renewables. That's at least the target. Europe, as you want, want to be zero carbon by 2050, which will imply a significant amount of uh, renewables. A significant amount of renewables implies that you will have a lot of marginal prices uh, at many times of the week, of the month, which means that the business model for the utilities have to be redesigned. It's not just a regulatory matter. It's policy matter also. And I think it's important that government um, reopens the discussion on how do we want um, this market to evolve? What's the role of the utilities? Um, is it regulated? Is it government intervention? Is it up to the government to decide um, where you will uh, develop uh, large pockets of generation? Um, the role of the consumer is spoke is central in Europe, but for most of the consumers, for them, when they talk about power, two things are important. It has to be there 24-7, and it has to be cheap. Uh, whether it's green is not yet an issue. Uh, it's, it's going to be an issue, but it's not really the important thing. If the utility wants to be uh, better understood, I think the first thing they have to do is explain how important they are. And I think it was Lamine who said that in his introduction today, and God knows you're right, Lamine, but our industry is doing and did a great job in the last couple of months by supporting the frontline people. Without our industry, you wouldn't have this effort that was um, everywhere um, noticeable. The issue for industry is that we cannot put this in market. Nobody knows that because electricity is like air. Everybody has to have it. So to come back on your question, Lawrence, I would say the first thing our industry needs to do is do some marketing and explain um, why we are there, uh, where is power, what it is, how it helps people, and make people understood that even with negative prices, Electricity for free is not possible. I appreciate that, Pierre. Let me just pivot quickly, and I want to have time to ask one more round of questions, and then 
I'm going to ask each of you towards the end to kind of chime in on what Lamine brought about, and, and I'm sure Tom would, would uh, agree to this, is this notion of unity of effort, unity of message, unity of guidance, which has been an underlying theme of EI's work over the last couple of years. And so we'll come back to that because i like for you to take that notion of unity of effort, guidance, and, and, and uh, message and broaden it and think globally how we can sort of a talk about that in a more global context. But Lamine, before we do that, let's come back to you. Pierre talked about cheap and affordable 24 by 7. How do we, in the context of Africa, how do we make the African utility sector attractive for private capital? What needs to happen to attract investors when it comes to the perception of risk with doing business in Africa? Can you briefly say a few words about that? Hey, I'd like to say, first of all, that the African utilities, the African governments, first of all, have to go and engage the stakeholders locally that one of the issues that we see is that the, 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 the term that we call politely non-technical losses. So you have to go and explain to people the value of electricity that Pierre was alluding to. Electricity is an extremely valuable commodity and people have to accept that they have to pay for it. So if a president were to take his minister of finance and is uh, head of a utility, to go regionally and explain to everybody what this magic uh, called electricity is and how much it costs to generate it, how everybody has to pay for it. Because when we pay for it, it comes back to us in so many ways in the jobs that are created that are going to employ the younger people and things like that. So that is the first order of priority. The second order of priority is something that I've seen EAI do so well, is to gather information and issue financial reports about its members. Now those numbers take a lot of guessing game out of how do you look at the utility sector in the United States. The African utilities have to be able to do that kind of thing, to gather independent, verifiable data together to make it available to the potential investors so they can evaluate it without any guessing game because you can over value over evaluate the uh, risk if you don't know several factors so the transparency of that data the transparency of the regulatory system in the country because that's extremely important that it becomes stable for people who come to invest because the power sector you invest for a long term. These are very, very heavy capital investment. So you want to make sure wherever you put your plant that there will be stability on how the country regulates the power sector. Mm -hmm. So in summary, making sure first of all that the African governments engage with their own people, the stakeholders, make sure they understand. Uh, that will free up some local resources so because I think there is some money in Africa to put in productive things because electricity is business. It makes money. That's what EI is based on. So if we make it available, uh, clear to people, the farmers, the market women, and all of these things across Africa, we have a first uh, source of capital. The rest, the outside world will come to help so we can leverage those existing resources. But that has got to be part of uh, of, of the effort to make sure that people, the, the sector remains a little bit more visible 
and uh, the risks are quantified in a more systematic way. Thanks, I mean, so before I go to Tom for any last comments before I come back to you guys with the closing question, because you guys will be put on the spot to sort of a help, help us frame what the next five, 10 years are going to look like in the context of unity of effort, unity of guidance, uh, and, and a unity of message. But let me just take one person who's raised their hand, uh, Bill Hedeman. Bill, do you have a question for, for our speakers? Yes, I do, Lawrence. Thank you. My, my question, I actually had a couple, but I, my first question was... You get to do one and a half, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> my first question was, with Africa, do, what is the current situation with respect to the 750 million persons uh, with access? Are most of them with grid-related connections or is it decentralized microgrids or even individual homes? Those 750 million people that I mentioned are the collected, uh, the collective uh, uh, utility customers. So those will be grid connected people. And there are some microgrids, but those, uh, 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 that is a small and growing part of the situation in Africa, particularly in rural areas. But the 750 million is the compilation of the uh, clients, uh, the uh, customers of all the, the, 30, the 49 utilities across the continent. And so, so the future, you expect the future to be largely grid connected, sounds like. Not future, all, but predominantly. The, the grid has to be there because uh, here we are, uh, in places, in many places, the uh, renewable is growing because you have a grid. Uh, in Africa, we have several phenomena. For instance, during this time of the year, we have this uh, uh, wind that blows from the Sahara Desert called the Harmatan, which coats solar panels, and it's a thick red dust, and the sun is hidden during that time. So if you are not connected to the grid that time, regardless of how um, responsive your panel is, you are going to be without electricity. So you have, and then uh, sometimes those, uh, uh, um, uh, that's followed by rain. And so the dust hardens on the solar panel. So that creates a lot of problems. The grid has to be there for industrialization. Yeah. That is the must. And the rest can be added onto that. And even those who have this uh, uh, standalone system, all of them ask the question, when are we getting the real electricity? Because after you get light, a couple of lights in your house, maybe a TV, you're gonna wanna buy a refrigerator. You're gonna buy other things. And all of those things for now, I think uh, the grid has to be part of a deal so that we can have a stable power supply. Thank you, Lamin. Thank you, Bill. Um, so let's, let's move on. Tom, I want to see if you have any last comment or questions before I come back to our speakers for the, for the last question. But I want to turn to you, Tom, if you have any, any reflections on what you've heard so far. Well, I tell you what, this just uh, reinforces uh, how much we really need to work together. I think the unity of message, unity of effort, unity of guidance has gotten, is going to continue to get us through the COVID-19 situation, but the long-term future of electricity and what we're gonna do and 
all the things we're going to learn from each other around the world are just so important. We need to continue this uh, kind of exchange. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And and just so, so one comment on the on the phone was about on the line was about Africa being very very large in terms of the regional differences where you have renewables sometimes in the east where you have the the Grand Inga Dam and you have a lot of resources in the north uh, with the solar. So yes, uh, there is this geographic diversity which makes the situation in Africa very very unique compared to other parts of the world in terms of the scale and the complexity. So let's come back to Pierre, Ian, and Lamine for your closing thoughts. And this is what I like each of you to do. Uh, Tom mentioned the notion of the unit of effort, unit of message, unit of guidance. Can you take those three concepts and put it in a much more global, con global construct and say over the next five years or even the next decade, how do you see electricity across the globe expanding in terms of the accessibility, the affordability, and how can we build upon this notion that EI has set forth of unity of message? How do we create this global unification around the message of electricity how do we guide public policymakers around the importance and the value of electricity? And how do we act together as a group globally to make sure electricity is affordable, reliable, and increasingly clean? So we'll start the reverse going first with Ian, then Lamine, and we'll end with you, Pierre. Yes, thanks, uh, Lawrence. Um, that's a big question. <laughs> That's why you're an ambassador, Ian. <laughs> Look, I, um, I'll go back to what I said before. I, I, I think we are really at a, a pivot point that if we don't grab this and use this, then we're not doing our own jobs as leaders. Um, I do think this is the first time that um, the EI relationships and vision around having um, that, that effort message and guidance uh, is, is really coming out to play um, and at a very critical time. So because I said the other day, uh, we, we've, done, we've done the response reasonably well. We can now pivot into recovery and uh, resiliency going forward. And for Lamine, it's a different pivot. It's, it's pivot into delivering the essentials of life and delivering industries, et cetera. It will be different for every one of us, but it is a pivot point for all of us. Um, and I do believe that through this, if we are, can collectively get uh, more collaboration and cooperation and leverage off the learnings from around the world, whether it's the integration of renewables into Australia and what we've learned from that, um, the lessons from Africa in terms of uh, the importance of the grid and enabling renewable integration uh, and industry. Um, I think getting those messages out uh, to not only the consumers and customers, uh, but to the governments and policy makers, etc. So I think we need to redouble our efforts, if not triple them, uh, at this important time and use this globally impacting event, uh, which has uh, placed energy uh, in everyone's mind as being absolutely critical. People get very upset if you take power off at the moment um, and, uh, and, and cast its, its future going forward. 
because we always had this question of purpose when all the renewables come in. I think that's changed now in everyone's mind. It's really about this is the connected uh, energy future and what can we do with it from this event through collaboration, uh, through the effort, through the message and guidance. Thank you, Ian. Lamin, final thoughts on this topic? Yeah, our message is that we have to stop being shy. <laughs> we have to who, who's shy? The ambassadors are shy? <laughs> I'm talking about our industry. Because uh, here in uh, my area, every Friday we go back out about 7 p.m. and we clap all the frontline workers, the nurses, the, the ambulance drivers, uh, the doctors. Yes, they are very, very important. But most often people forget us in the electric power industry because we are what links all of these people together. So we have to be a little bit more brash about how we promote our sector, how we are humming behind the scene. Tom likes to quote the, uh, the, what the EEI members contribute to the US GDP. It's the first 5%. Everything else is based on electricity. So we have to be a little bit more brash about tooting our own horn and explaining that explaining that electricity is a good value because anytime the power goes down, people's lives become miserable. The other issue I'd like to bring up also is if uh, Pierre decides to come and visit Florida, he stops being the customer of the electric utility in, Florida, uh, in Brussels and for the two weeks he's going to spend in Florida, he's going to be the customer of Florida Power and Light. Right? So there is that mobility of customers across the world when we are traveling, when we are going everywhere. When I go to Brussels, I go to Ghent and I get some chocolate, I know that it's because the power is being supplied to make those factories work. So that links all of us across the world, that the power is a factor. So going forward, we definitely have to continue to work together in EEI, there is the most extensive collection of how to generate, transmit, and distribute electricity. There is no other place in the world that you can find that. And it's a tribute that the association is willing to catalog that, to make it available to everybody, those who have been doing it for a long time, and the newcomers, so that our lives across the world can be comfortable, education, healthcare, job creation, security, everything is based on how we harness and distribute the electron. Well, thank you, Lamin. Pierre, just before you give us the final word, I just want to make a note here that you talk about education. So one of the things that I've been involved with is uh, some work that the IEEE has been doing together with my friend Bill Heatherman to talk about and sort of pull together some of the the, the learnings from around this. So the sort of organization like the IEEE that uh, provides more technical uh, work around this area is something that we certainly look to to uh, to being involved with and, and, and bringing some of their learnings and their discoveries to this whole discussion. So Pierre, you started of uh, this uh, webinar series, you're gonna end by uh, giving your reflections on the unit of effort, unit of message, unit of guidance team from your perspective. But thank you, Lawrence, and thank you, colleagues, for the um, very interesting conversation. Um, 
If you want to talk about unity, Lawrence, I think the first thing we should say is that this crisis should be a wake-up call for everybody, but for our industry um, above everything, because our industry brings good everywhere. Um, without power today, without electricity, nothing works. Um, it's not just a blackout. You, you don't have healthcare, you don't have water, you don't have internet, you have nothing. And I think our industry has a responsibility um, to make sure that people understand that we are going to face more crisis and the big one to come is the crisis that will result from climate change. The chance we have is that we have a couple of years ahead of us, but we should not consider all oh, we have the time to go back to normal. If we want to go and change things, our industry should take the lead. And as Amin rightfully mentioned, um, as an ambassador of VEI, if you allow me, I would suggest to our friends at VEI, you have a great role to play here. Uh, you, are an, you are an organization that is really showing the way in the US, but also worldwide. And I think uh, your industry, with your guidance, uh, with Tom and you, Lawrence, and your colleagues, you have a lot to do here, guys. You have a big responsibility on your shoulders to help people understand how important power is and how much power brings good to people. Thank you so much, Pierre. I didn't think you want to give me an assignment, but typically that's what you do, so I appreciate it anyway. Uh, really, this has been an, an, an honor and really a privilege working with the three of you over the last couple of years. And, and certainly, I want to thank Tom for uh, allowing this idea of creating a global ambassador program to take root. Um, I remember still sitting in Tom's office about five years ago trying to uh, talk to him about it. And one of the assurances I had to give Tom was the fact that you guys will not have diplomatic immunity for your behavior. And uh, I wasn't able to give that to you. So uh, and you still accepted the offer to be an ambassador without the diplomatic immunity. But uh, on a more serious note, I think this has been a very informative uh, webinar. And uh, uh, you know, it's an informative. We ran over a little bit uh, by five minutes, but we still have about 33 people still on the call, which is a good thing. So thanks again to each of you. I know it's very early for you, Ian, in the morning. It's late for you, Pierre, in the night. And Lamine is right in the middle of the day. So uh, thanks to each of you uh, for doing this. Uh, Tom, any final comments from me before we end? No, good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, everybody, and have a good evening, guys. Hope to see you very soon. Good night to everybody. Take Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. 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 This has been an, another enlightening episode on charging ahead the electrification of Africa. We hope it has helped shed some light on keeping the lights on in Africa. And we invite you to check back soon for another enlightening episode. Thank you.